Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. If you will join me, we're going to pray for Karen, and I'm going to turn it over to her. God, thank you so much for what we have just experienced together as sisters and friends as we've gathered around the table and discuss together your word. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for our personal time in the word this week and what you've revealed to us. And God, thank you for revealing something personally to Karen as well. And we look forward to what you have to teach us through her as she speaks to us. God, would you give her just peace and calm and courage as she shares what you have given her to say? Would you give us, God, ears to listen and hearts to understand what you would want us to to receive? And we give this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, hello, ladies. Um, So, my husband and I have been on this journey of sorts in the last year, um, remodeling a house. And uh, our desire is for it to be a place of refuge. Um, We've been calling it Camp Via because Via means the way. And it's also in the name of our street. Um, so it's funny how people respond to that. Our daughter um, has already told us that she's going to be bringing her junior high uh, group and her community group of young adults to come camp. Um, because we're in a community that has land down by a, a creek at Salado. And so she's going to have, bring them for campouts. Uh, one of our sons had a different take on it. Uh, he was like, well, mom and dad, you know, I'm in the Navy and when I get out, y'all will be old. So I'll take the house. (laughs) So, okay. All right. Um, but anyway, we don't recommend remodeling (laughs) just so you know. Um, but we do feel like the Lord led us to this place, uh, for the fourth quarter of our lives. Um, it's been a long, frustrating slog. Uh, in fact, this week we had the third countertop installed and uninstalled. <laughs> so it's crazy. Um, so at times like that, you know, you start wondering: Did do we hear the Lord right? You know, are we doing? Are we making the right decisions? Um, so I can really relate to these Israelites. They are probably really, really happy to get their land and get settled down. We will be too sometime, and don't ask me when, okay? So, but uh, so last week we had Karen Smith, and she talked to us about uh, the allotments to the twelve tribes and to those faithful spies, uh, Caleb and Joshua. And today we're going to look in chapters. uh, Let's see, I forgot which button to hit. I'm sorry, I hit the the one on the right. Okay. Uh, so today we're going to look at chapters 21, 20, or 20, 21, and 22, and I've titled them Better Refuge, Better Priest, Better Unity. Um, so the first two of those, uh, 20 and 21, talk about continued dividing the land. And it's talking about how the land was divided to give to the Levites. So um, they were granted some use of cities and pasture lands uh, in, inside the, other, the allotments that had already been given to the other tribes. And so chapter 20 talks about those cities of refuge. Um, but I also wanted to, Karen t- talked about it last week, but I just wanted to remind you that 
the Levi's were, um, Levi was one of the sons of uh, Jacob that had misbehaved. He had done some terrible things with Simeon, his brother. And both of them were, Jacob had told them that they were going to be divided and be scattered in the land. And of course, Simeon actually was put inside the the allotment that was given to Judah. And they kind of, as history goes on, they kind of disappear. But the Levites, they must have received some measure of grace because in Numbers 8, their curse of being divided and scattered turns into a blessing. They were chosen for service uh, for the Lord as priests. And though they don't get to inherit any land, we learned that their inheritance was the Lord. Doesn't this remind you of the Gibeonites and the punishment that they got for their deception? Remember, they were taken as woodcutters and water carriers in the house of the Lord. And so here's an example again of just how gracious our Heavenly Father is and how He redeems and repurposes His own in unexpected ways despite our failures. So let's look at the city of refuge. These cities of refuge, I think, point us to a better refuge. Six of the cities that were allotted to the Levites were deemed as cities of refuge. In Numbers 35, God said that they were to set these cities out as a place for the manslayer to go to be protected. Because a manslayer, that's, that's kind of like involuntary manslaughter in our language. It would be uh, accidental murder or accidental killing without malice of forethought. So great care because God cares about, he cares about the person that was killed, but he also cares about the one who accidentally killed. So he doesn't want there to be a, an improper killing of that person. And that day and age, they didn't have the civil authorities like we do, the police officers or whatever. So it came to the, to the um, relative. The, the, they call it the avenger of blood in this passage, but it also would be called the kinsman or the kinsman redeemer. That would be the person that would be responsible for killing somebody that had murdered their relative. So it was important that if there was some dispute that the uh, killer could run and, and be saved until the, the case could be heard. So these cities of refuge were placed, we, we saw, in strategic places around, and they were easy to get to. In fact, there were rules on, um, they were to make the roads really smooth so that it was somebody running wouldn't trip. Uh, they were to have signs, big signs that would say refuge this way kind of thing. So, okay. So I'm, I think weird, but um, you know when you go skiing and you're going down the slopes and there's those huge signs at the forks? Well, I always need to look for the blue slope, not the black one. <laughs> and I also want to make sure I'm going to the right lift, like where my family's going to be, because otherwise I'm totally lost. Uh, or my kids are. Uh, usually they're not, I am. Um, okay, so, so there's these big signs pointing the way. Well, the other thing we know about these cities of refuge is that though the gates to those cities were supposed to always be open. Um, and they were, um, excuse me, I gotta catch my breath. Um, and when the person got there, they were to be brought in and, and provided for. They'd be fed and housed, and they were probably given work to do. And they would, they would come fall on the elders. The elders would say, yes, come in. Then they would uh, do the case. But one thing we have to remember is 
they weren't going to be saved if they didn't come to the city of refuge. They, if they just stayed out in the countryside, there was no protection for them. But if they come to the city of refuge, their case is heard, they're told that, you know, that it was an accidental murder or accidental killing, then they could stay. But they were only safe if they actually stayed. If they went outside those walls, they weren't safe anymore until the high priest had died. So there had to be blood or the, the death of the high priest to pay for the penalty of an, even an accidental killing. But okay, so let me say, so we have a similar refuge in Christ. We have easy access. It's open to all people. The doors are never locked. It's sufficient to meet our needs. And there's safety guaranteed where there's freedom there. But there are ways that the cities of refuge differ from the cities of uh, the refuge we have in Christ. The Levitical cities of refuge only granted safety to the innocent. But grant, Christ grants safety to the guilty, even the murderer. And who among us has not met the New Testament definition of murder? Matthew 5 says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Guilty. So, okay. So also, Christ is nearer than the city of refuge. In fact, he even seeks us out. You know, if we seek, we'll find, but he's also seeking us. It says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But all these things about Christ pointing to a better refuge are, are really important. But one thing that really stuck out to me in this passage was that these cities of refuge were for all. They were for the citizen and the stranger and the sojourner. Sojourner in our vernacular could be the immigrant, uh, the person that's living among them, but is not truly a citizen. And we see the same, pa same pattern of being welcoming or being available to the, to the uh, sojourner in this pattern, or excuse me, in, in the passage where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, 9. And in there it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaritan, Samaria? I'm sorry, I didn't take enough deep breaths today. <laughs> okay. And it even says at the end of that passage, in parentheses, to explain it to us, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I mean, they're making it clear here, she is an other. She's a woman. She's an enemy of ours. She is not a citizen. She is not part of us. So what do we do with the other? The immigrant, the vagrant, the trafficked, the lonely? Do we as a church invite them in and meet their needs? Will we follow this pattern that God laid out in the cities of refuge and in the ministry of Christ? Will we make a path for the other easy? 
and be like that huge sign that says, this way to Jesus, this way to your family. Some of us are. Some of us see people. Some of us um, are walking in God's ways, helping adopted or foster kids, or teen moms, or the homeless or the addicted, or those in crisis pregnancies, or even prison. There's even some ladies that opened a home for women who've just been released from prison. May our eyes be open to the needs spiritual and physical and emotional of the other. This quote from, um, excuse me, from Francis Schaeffer is from 1975. And it really sums it up. I'm going to start a little before what's on the screen. He says in his book, this was entirely new in the heathen world. Here was real justice a universal civil code that pertained equally to the citizen and the stranger. The justice, in other words, to include the sojourner or the, or the immigrant, was not just rooted in the notion of a superior people, like we're the, we're the Jews, we're superior, but it was in the character of God, and therefore it pertained to all men. Do you hear that? How we treat the other is about the character of God. And our God is a better refuge. And our God receives all who come to him. So the next passage talks about the Levitical cities or the priesthood that the, the, the Levites. You know, and they're spread throughout the country. And I think they point us to a better priest in chapter 21, we find out that those six cities of refuge are just part of 48 cities that were designed to be the place where the Levites were going to live. And that long list in there sounds like a last will and testament in a way, doesn't it? But those cities don't belong to the Levites. They're only allowed to live there on the allotments that the other 12 tribes have. Um, and but they're there to help the people see God. They're there to, to, to help give sacrifices, but also to help the people see the word. And the word is so important. I mean, it's all throughout Joshua. It starts in chapter one. And then the, one I, the last time I taught, we talked about how they went across the Jordan following the word. The word was in the ark that stood in the, the midst of the Jordan. So the word is just all throughout this. So God's made a way for people to find him, to, to see him. And uh, they were doing it through the word, and now he does it through Jesus. Um, but I thought it was interesting that those 12 tribes, you know, there's, there's, they're in every part of the land. Um, they were willing to give up, to give that space for the people, of, for the Levites, the people that were to, to lead them in worship and um, help them know God better. And doesn't that look a little bit like the first fruits that we saw in Jericho? Or the tithe that Abraham gave Melchizedek when we were studying in Genesis? Or even the tithe that we give today? Because the, the fact that the Israelites obey Joshua and give the space to these Levites reflects the, their understanding 
that the land really belongs to God. And in gratitude, they willingly give back a portion to him. So today we have a better priest in Jesus. And as we said it in Hebrews 4 last year with Cassie, the Levitical priests were sinners themselves and they had to offer sacrifices continually. But Jesus is sinless. And therefore, the sacrifice that we need was made once for all by Christ at the cross. Christ is also better because of the way he can be sympathetic to us. The Levites, they, you know, they sinned, but they had certain different temptations and they fell with them. But we learned that Jesus was tempted in every way and to the utmost. Like he, he did it to the point where we would have already cracked. He stayed with it. And so therefore, he is more sympathetic than any other priest could be for us. And then the place where Jesus is, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father intervening for us or, or interceding for us. And so he's even there right now. He's as close as you can be. If a priest's job is to sacrifice and to, to present your, your, your request to God, he's the best. He's the best priest. He's the better priest. So Jesus, God always provides a way to himself, and Jesus is the way. Then there's a little passage in Joshua 21, and y'all might want to look there. I'm not going to read all of it. But um, it's talking about the, it's kind of summarizing the end of the division of the land. We had something like this at the end of the taking of the land, and now we have it again here. But what's important about this is how it completely shows how God, excuse me, how it shows how God completely kept his promises. In fact, in those three passages, those three um, verses, 43 through 45, we see the word all in Hebrew six times. So it's all, okay? So um, I'm just going to read a couple of little phrases from it just to reinforce that God was the one doing the work. In 43, the Lord God gave to Israel all the land. In 44, the Lord God gave them rest on every side. 45, and the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of the good promises that the Lord had uh, made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So this summary reminds us just how faithful the Lord is. All the good promises that he made had come to pass. And this is just, we've seen this throughout our study. God is sovereign to give his people a place and a rest. And God is faithful in fulfilling his good promises. So we ask, what would be the response of the Israelites to God's faithfulness? And what's our response to God's mercy and his grace that he bestows on us? Well, shouldn't it be worship and service? Well, for a while at least, we see the Israelites actually follow God and do what he asks and all of that. We're going to get to Judges in a couple of weeks and we'll see that it all fell apart. But in the meantime, let's look at where they did the right things. So the last three chapters of Joshua talk about um, Israel serving the Lord. And I think in chapter 22, we see a better unity. That's one way that they serve the Lord. So uh, the, the, the passage picks up there at Shiloh. 
And Joshua is specifically talking to the two and a half tribes. So again, the two and a half tribes are the ones, I'm doing the wrong side because they're, they're on this side if you're looking at me. The two and a half tribes were on the uh, east and the nine and a half tribes were on the west. And so these, the nine and a half are in the space in the land where Canaan, that was the actual land that Abraham had walked and that God told him, this is what you're going to take. This other was land that Moses had allowed these two and a half tribes to inhabit. So, um, so, so it kind of helps you understand why they're, they're going to get into this thing about this altar that we're going to find out about. Okay, but before they leave, the tribes are all together. They've taken the land. They've divided it all up. And Joshua takes the time to commend the, um, the two and a half tribes that are about to leave and go back across the Jordan. And he, command, he commends them for, for obeying, uh, keeping all that Moses had commanded them. He, he um, commends them for obeying his voice. Leadership's hard, ladies. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a blessing. I mean, if we obey the people that we need to follow. Um, he, he commends them for not sake, forsaking their brothers. They, they, they did what he asked them to do. In chapter one, he asked them to go and help take the land. And they did that. And so their actions reflect their service back to God and to their fellow Israelites. After he commends them, he blesses them. He tells them, go back to your tents and you go to your tents and, you know, live in your land, take your spoils of war with you and share those spoils of war with the people who stayed and held the land while you were over here fighting. And so they, they do that. And, but then he, he, he said, he tells them how they're going. He, well, first of all, he's telling them, go back, but he's also telling them, and you're going to have rest there. That's part of the blessing. But then he warns them, you're going to have to remember some things to enjoy the rest. And this is in chapter 22, verse 5. You might want to look there. It's pretty long. Um, he tells them six things that they need to do. He says, only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So he's telling them, you're going to have to fight for your rest. Part of it's going to be the way you love the Lord and part of it's going to be the way you obey him and the way you follow him, the way you walk with him. Do you cling to him? I mean, is he, is he everything to you? Or is there something else you're, you know, are you caught between the two? Um, and then put your whole heart and your whole soul and I would say even your whole mind into it. Um, and you ladies are, you're, you're studying, you're, you're digging in. You know, I'm preaching to the choir here, so. Um, so the two and a half tribes, they depart. And they go, they're going to go back across the Jordan. But on their way, they build an altar. And we don't even know what, I mean, the, the author of, of Joshua, you know, kind of leaves us in suspense for a while, like what that's all about. But um, it's, it's kind of interesting literature. <laughs> But the two and a half tribes depart. They build this altar. They cross on over. Think nothing of it. 
and they go about their way. But it's huge because they want it to be seen from both sides of the Jordan. So it's on the east side and they're going back. I mean, it's on the west side and they're going back to the east side. But no time frame is really given. I assume that it's pretty soon after because it sounds like the nine and a half tribes maybe are still all together at Shiloh. Uh, They get news of this altar and the nine and a half tribes are very distressed. And in the passage, it says in verse 12, even that the assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Now, one author I was reading described how odd this would be. This was a war-weary bunch. I mean, they had just had seven years of battles to take the land. Um, And they're going to go fight the very people who helped them take the land. So something big is up for them to be willing to go to make war against their brothers. Um, But it's interesting to see not only what, what motivated them, but also how the two and a half tribes that they go to attack, or go to talk to at least, uh, respond to this threat of war. So let's break down the interaction and see if there's some truths from God's word that we can apply to our conflicts. And maybe we can have a better unity if we do. Um, so in Joshua 22, I'm just going to read a few little verses on, as I'm doing it so I don't have to read this whole long passage because we'll run out of time. But in Joshua 22:16, the Israelites state their concern. They say to the nine and a half, say to the two and a half, what is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourself this altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? So what they're upset about is they see this new altar as a breach of faith or as rebellion. They value God's word so much that they're willing to go to war over it. How do I know that that the reason is God's word? Is because in Deuteronomy 12, God had commanded them, and there's, I'm going to give you three parts, but basically said, you're going to seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and to make his, his habitation there. In other words, there's going to be one place when you come into the land, there's one place where we're going to worship and I'm going to pick it. That's what God's telling them. Previous in that part of Deuteronomy, he tells them, tear down the worship places of the people you've taken the land from. And he tells them at the very, at the end, after he says, take them down, do it where I tell you, he also says, and don't do everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Well, when we get to judges, what's the problem? They all do right, what's right in their own eyes. Everyone does, it, it's over and over and over in judges. So we see that this is an important principle with God is that he, worship needs to be him and him alone and kind of the way he, he dictates as well. So the Israelites are instructed to worship God in this one place that God had chosen, which was currently Shiloh. And, but there's even a more of a passage that helps you understand that they were concerned for God's word because they follow, these nine and a half tribes follow the way that um, God tells them to, to, do, to deal with conflict. In Deuteronomy 13, he says, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. 
So they do that. They, they go and they say, what is this breach of faith? You know, they don't just attack. They actually have a conversation first. We can learn a lot from that, couldn't we? Okay, <laughs> so, but clearly too, they're, um, the concern of the nine and a half tribes is that the whole community will be judged for the sin of a few. And we know this because they refer to uh, the history of the sin of uh, Peor, I think is how it's pronounced, uh, that's in Numbers 25. And then they also bring up the sin of Achan that we studied here in Joshua. So I don't have time to go into all the details, um, but it is interesting that the leader of that tribe of nine and a half um, is Phineas, Phineas, okay. And um, I should listen to it online, shouldn't I? Okay, Um, Phineas, and he is a guy that, um, he's the son of one of the the priests. And it's interesting, Joshua's not with them. It's this Phineas and the nine, and leaders of the 10 tribes, the nine and a half, they round up to 10. Okay, so, uh, so he, um, he is with them. And the thing about him is that at, this, at Peor, it was a time when they were in the, the land of Moab and there were these Baal worshipers. And during that time, 24,000 people were killed by a plague. And the plague only stopped after Phineas um, killed two of the Baal worshipers. So this guy is zealous for the Lord's, you know, honor. Uh, and so you'd be kind of scared if you saw that guy coming after you, you know. But later we're going to see that there, that even within this, this 10 tribes, one of their own ends up building an altar to Yahweh, not to another God, but not at Shiloh or not at Jerusalem. He builds it in another place. And that, that person is Jeroboam, who we'll probably see in a couple of years if we keep on this path. <laughs> so, okay. But I was, the thing, you know, you get all these passages and it's like, well, what, what is God saying to me about this? And that's the importance of this live teaching. You know, it can be laborious if you have somebody like me. But it, I was struck by the solution that was offered. The nine and a half tribes, they say to them in verse nine, take for yourselves a possession among us. In other words, we don't want you to sin so much that we'll give up part of our land so you can come live with us. And, you know... Look at the depth of love and concern that they had for their brothers. This love led to a willingness to sacrifice. Sorry. So that their brothers and themselves would not face God's wrath. Do I approach others that way? Or do I just point my finger and judge their sin? They're offering a place back in Canaan, the land that they just got. And they're saying, we're going to make room for you. Come back. Don't sin. It's another recognition that the land they receive belonged to God. They're just stewards of it. Okay, so then we see a response from the two and a half tribes. 
we have all this, you know, the nine half is spoken, now it's time for the two and a half to respond. And they also show a great fear of the Lord. We know this from their, the way they make their appeal. They start out twice, they say, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord. And they say, he knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. Do you see how holy God's word is and what God's plan for them is? That they're like, if we are sinning, don't spare us. But we aren't. He knows, he sees. So they're going to go on. They're going to explain their intention of what they intended when they built that altar. And, you know, they're all waiting to hear. Instead of just attacking, they're actually having a conversation. <laughs> and uh, they, they get to hear what that was on their heart when they built the tower or the altar. And they say in verses 24 through 27, I'm just going to pick up a few pieces here. It says, no, but we did it from the fear that in the time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Yahweh, of Israel? And I mean, that could be legitimate because remember Abraham and Canaan, that was, that was like the part that was promised. This is extra. So it's kind of legitimate that they have this concern. They, and plus they have that big, the boundary of the Jordan and there wasn't like a bridge over it. You know, it was difficult. So um, there was concern that they would be separated. He goes on to say, so you might, your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. So let us now build an altar and let it be a witness between you and us. And so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. So we learn that the two and a half tribes, they're steadfast in wanting their children to be people of God too, at least at this point. And fortunately, Phinehas uh, accepts this answer and they, they call the altar witness as a witness between them. It says, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. And Amy, when I was talking to her about this passage, she brought up that we have a similar altar. And it, it's one of my favorite times in the body of the believers. We did it this last Sunday, communion, the Lord's Supper. It's a time when we are all together and we remember the Lord's death and his resurrection and until he comes again. And it's a witness between us that the Lord is God and he is our portion. And so, yes, indeed, God's people are united by God's truth spoken in love. So I think that's the thing we can learn from that is seek the truth and then go go forth with that, and, but be loving in the way we do it. So if we look at all these passages together, we see that, um, I didn't realize I had that, okay. So, uh, I'm sorry. Okay. So I was going to show you that these, these, these thoughts about um, a better priest, a better um, refuge, a better unity. Because if you have a portion, obviously there's a unity. You know, portion's only part of a whole, right? So here was just a passage in Psalm when I was reading um, 
not during while I was preparing for this, Psalm 142.5, it just covers all those things. And so I was going to ask you to read this with me. Um, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So let us remember this as we do Joshua 20. And, um, and so hopefully that's been helpful. I don't know. Okay, let's pray. I'm sorry. So Heavenly Father, we do cry out to you. We say together that you're a better refuge. We are safe under your wings. Help us to see and care for our sisters and the other in our midst. Help us to be like lights, like those huge signs saying refuge, so that any in need can come to you. Jesus, you're a better priest. Thank you for your perfect sacrifice on our behalf and for sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us even now. And help us, Holy Spirit, to know the word and to love each other and thereby to enjoy a better unity. Help us to deal with our suspicions and misunderstandings in ways that show your presence and your blessing. Amen. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh. That was great. I don't know how to turn it off. Can you turn, can you turn me off? <laughs> Everybody gets to see my butt. <laughs>